Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For today's show, I was joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and our political correspondent, Harry McGee. Um, we talked first about some of the issues that have arisen in what has turned out to be quite a hectic political week. And later in the podcast, we took a closer look at a story which hasn't quite made our front pages, but which has been bubbling along in the media for the last two or three weeks around the allocation of sports grants. But first, I asked Pat what kind of a week it had been for our Minister for Foreign Affairs and Taunashta, Simon Coveney? He is a busy man, uh, is the Taunashta, a Minister for Foreign Affairs. He was front and centre in a uh, a few developments in the ongoing abortion saga. And of course, he was the man who decided, after consultation with his government colleagues, to expel a an as yet unnamed uh, Russian diplomat uh, as part of the EU and broader response uh, to the poison Evenings in um, uh, in Salisbury. So uh, yes, he's a busy man. In fact, uh, as we speak, he is on his feet in the doll, uh, answering foreign affairs questions. Is he is he a damaged politician as a result of his uh, pivot um, in a, in a column in the Irish Independent on Monday on the issue of the legislation to follow the Eighth Amendment, and then his rather perhaps rather odd statements yesterday in relation to. Uh, what shape legislation should take? I'm afraid I think he he probably is. Certainly hasn't enhanced uh, his standing either within his own party, according to several conversations that I had with members of it yesterday, uh, or I think with the broader public. Um, just the, the background uh, of this is that uh, in after Leo Varadkar Tisha came out, and said that, you know, formally uh, at the end of January that there would be uh, a referendum, uh, that it would seek to uh, repeal the Eighth Amendment and that the government would then, if that referendum was carried by the people, would introduce uh, uh, legislation to allow for abortion up to on request up to uh, 12 weeks uh, along the lines of the uh, of the Oireachtas committee. Uh, after uh, the Taoiseach did that, Simon Covey came out a few days afterwards and he said while he was certainly in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment, he could not assent to legislation, he could not support legislation that allowed for abortion on request up to 12 weeks. And that, I think, was quite a significant departure in uh, in the campaign at that point, uh, not least because... The, the, the great achievement of the repealers and of the government at that stage was to kind of occupy the the middle ground, uh, populated at least in part by people who are in favour of repeal but wary about the extension of uh, of a liberal abortion law. And certainly, that's uh, I think what many of them would have interpreted the twelve weeks uh, proposals to be. Um, and and Coveney's intervention at that stage kind of arrested that. It at least made that middle ground competitive or, or uh, it, it made it a competed space. 
uh, if you were. Al- now, al- although even at that stage, he was he was still he he remained in favour of repeal absolutely the Eighth and Amendment. unequivocally in favour uh, in favour of repeal. But given the assumption in in the correct assumption, I think in most quarters that the referendum will come down not just to the question of repeal, but also the question of what follows the the, the, the current constitutional ban. And um, I think his intervention at that stage was significant. Now, what he did on Monday was to come out and say he changed his mind on the 12 weeks and that he was now subject to, you know, particular uh, uh, restrictions, particular controls uh, being put in place in the government's legislation. He was now in a position to support the introduction of the 12 weeks, uh, the 12 weeks legislation. And that obviously caught a lot of people by surprise. But what was perhaps even more surprising is that he followed that up uh, yesterday in yesterday morning's papers with the Uh, suggestion that he would seek to have uh, it written into the legislation that future changes in the law on abortion could only be made with a two-thirds majority in the Dáil. Now... That's uh, unprecedented. There is no other legislation in this state that 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 has such a a measure in it, does it? uh, No, there's not, uh, for the reason that the Constitution says quite clearly that, uh, uh, that, that it... That legislation is passed by a majority uh, mm-hmm. in the Dáil, not by uh, a two-thirds majority. Now, I slept through most of the constitutional law lectures in uh, that I went to in UCDQ, but I could have told you that after ten seconds that the proposal was uh, was unconstitutional. So, a politician who spent Kobe. the last twenty years of, uh, of his life in the Dáil, who's been a senior minister for several years, the idea that he wouldn't know that seems slightly implausible. I find that difficult to believe, to be honest, that Simon Coveney thought that there was uh, a reasonable chance of this making it into the legislation. And was he, and, and, and were he to be unsure about it, it seems peculiar that he wouldn't have maybe consulted a lawyer or the Attorney General or, or anybody else uh, in so advance before. I'm I'm forced to the conclusion that what he was doing was signalling by virtue of this intervention, which he knew was doomed, but he wanted to make it anyway in order to signal his uh, his his reluctance or his carefulness uh, on the uh, and his caution on the twelve weeks proposal that he was signalling to people in the middle ground that look, I'm like you. I'm a bit unsure about this extension of the uh, of the law on abortion, or a, liber- a big liberalising move on abortion, and uh, and this is one of the means that I'm uh, using that, to do so. Is that the wisest of political moves, Harry, to propose something which common sense would tell you is almost certainly unconstitutional as a way of signalling your? your unease or, or where you stand on a political issue? Uh, yeah, I think uh, and Simon Harris uh, also initially indicated that he might support um, such uh, a move and I mean in order to achieve that uh, the government would have to have another constitutional uh, uh, referendum to, to allow that to be inserted into the constitution because as was pointed out by Pat and others uh, yesterday uh, a, even if a two-thirds uh, uh, majority were required to that change. That could be overturned by, be overturned by, by another, another piece yeah. of legislation. Another piece mm, of legislation yeah. that would just require a simple majority. Mm. Now there are instances where a two-thirds majority are required, but they are all provided for within the constitution. For and example, explicitly so. Explicitly yes. so. For example, if uh, one wanted to impeach uh, the president, 
that would require a two-thirds majority uh, of, of the Dáil. So there are specific examples. Mm. But the net point, the important point here, is that all of them are provided from uh, within the Constitution. I think it's, it's been an unfortunate two days uh, for Simon Coveney. Uh, he has changed his mind. Uh, but in changing his mind, he has given ammunition uh, to those who are campaigning uh, to uh, to preserve the Eighth Amendment uh, that politicians can't be trusted. And that has been a regular meme or theme of their campaign so far. And this will add uh, to uh, the ammunition that they've been using in terms of this propaganda I think, war. I think we should, you know, we should... You know, pause a moment. And say it's 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 not necessarily a hanging offence for people to, to change, change their, their minds, minds hmm. on anything. And actually, if you look at you know the entire histories thus far of the abortion debate, you know lots of other people have changed their minds. Michael Martin has changed his mind, and Leo Varadkar has changed his mind, and many other politicians have too. And just as I'm sure many uh, many people have, might be people might go through more than one change of mind on it. But what is peculiar about Simon Coveney's instance is that he. Uh, at the time of his February intervention, when he said he was uh, that he couldn't live with the, the the twelve weeks proposal, that by his own admission came after very considerable consideration of the issues. I think he said he in, in, that he had read the uh, the report of the Oireachtas Committee a dozen times. He'd considered it very carefully, and he just couldn't live with the the twelve weeks and. It's one thing somebody changing a long-held position that they may have held somewhat reflexively over many years and then considered the issues and changed their mind on them. But it is peculiar. Now, I don't doubt the sincerity of it for a moment, but it is peculiar that somebody should, after very considerable, uh, after very considerable rumination and, and, uh, and meditation on it, should arrive at one position... And then a couple of months later... It does that seem that a little flaky, Harry. It does. And um, as Pat said there, I, I can't I can't cavil with anything that Pat has said. I think he spent a lot of time considering before arriving at the position where he had difficulties of 12 weeks. And then he has obviously spent a lot of time considering since. But I think he actually needs to come out uh, at some stage. And um, I know that he wrote an op-ed uh, piece for the uh, for one of our rival newspapers, Independent, on Monday. But I think that he probably needs to, to uh, explain his rationale uh, a, a little more. Actually, I was listening to an interview that uh, Thomas Byrne from uh, Fianna Fáil gave yesterday on radio, and he didn't have much of an issue with Simon Coveney changing his mind. I think the big issue he had was that he. No, made I'm such not talking about the change in the mind. It's the rest. It's the other the other stuff. That yes, followed, the two really. thirds. It's this, this this very fundamental schoolboy error in relation to how our parliamentary and democratic system uh, works. And that was, if not unforgivable, that was a serious error by him and perhaps uh, shows that uh, perhaps his research wasn't as deep in some respects as it might have been. So we've heard confirmation today, or pretty much confirmation, Pat, that the date for this referendum will be May the 25th. I think it's due to be formally announced. From no less an authority than my colleague Sarah Barden, who has lately mm-hmm. tweeted it, uh, so we can take that. There you as, are, gospel. Uh, we can take that as gospel. The uh, the process at the moment is the uh, the bill, the referendum bill. That's the the bill to allow the referendum to be 
held, not the abortion bill that will follow the referendum if, it, if successful? it is successful. Um, that bill is in the Shannad this week. It passed second stage in the Shannad after a lengthy debate, which um, culminated in a vote at about quarter past 20 past 11 uh, last night. Um, so it will go to committee stage and probably remaining stages in the Shannad today, probably will sail through the Shannad today and after uh, at that point that's when the referendum becomes legally inevitable and I think the government will name the date later as the 25th of May. And what's the result going to be? The result of the vote the in the Shannon? The referendum. The, resu- the result of the referendum. Well, now we're putting me on the spot. Uh, I think, um, uh, as of now, I think the referendum will probably pass. Um, I think there is a, an easier route to 50% plus one for the repeal side. Uh, I think it is not impossible that it is defeated, but it is a much more difficult ask of the retained side to get to that 50% uh, plus one. And uh, I think that is how it stands at the moment. And briefly, if you don't mind, you you write today about the Strategic Communications Mm. Unit and its demise. It was kind of was bound to happen, wasn't it? I I remember a a, um, a report many years ago on electronic voting. I think it was done by uh, Dermot Quigley, a former uh, chair of the Revenue Commissioners. And I think the the conclusion of that report was that uh, Martin Cullen did nothing wrong, but it will never happen again. So (laughs) there's a little bit of the same in relation to uh, this. When you look at the actual report, the Strategic Communications Unit have been exonerated completely. Perfect. Absolutely. In in relation in relation to this charge that they politicised Project 2040 and tried to manipulate coverage in the provincial papers. Can I just ask you one question Mm. about that? Because I I, I think that's probably true. But the fact is that the, the relationship with those provincial papers was not directly carried out by the Special Communications Unit. It was by a private company acting on its behalf. And did this report look it at did, what that it, private it, company it, did? It did. It went into detail. Uh, they, there were two companies, actually, Mediaforce, which dealt with many provincial papers, and then INM, which dealt with titles that were owned by independent news and media. Uh, they spoke to officials from both of those. Uh, they had uh, access to their emails and to the instructions that they issued to provincial papers. Now, at no stage... Uh, was a specific instruction issued that advertising copy uh, was to be manipulated so it should look like real news. There was an instruction in relation to uh, the the, the branding. They said the branding in partnership was sufficient, uh, that the word advertising or advertorial was not required. Uh, That was a decision that was taken by the the, the media company. And in one uh, instance, one provincial newspaper editor said uh, that that the media uh, company had asked it uh, to make the coverage look more newsy. Uh, but Elizabeth Canavan from the Department of Antigua carried out that substantial uh, report. She interviewed quite a few editors and they said that there was no pressure put on them and all the decisions were taking, taken at an ad- editorial level. What the SEU did wrong uh, was that it was too hands-off, actually, ironically enough, in relation to that, that it, it sent it out, it issued instructions, and then it had no control on the subsequent copy uh, that appeared. And in three newspapers, the Longford Leader, uh, the Limerick uh, Leader, and the Roscommon uh, Herald, there are pictures of Fine Gael candidates. Those decisions were taken locally. And the point was made by the report uh, that that should have been uh, that should have gone back to the SEU and they should have had ultimate there's control a certain, over I mean, We have to move on this very quickly, but there's a certain irony here. Is actually, isn't there, Pat, that the SEU 
the only criticism of it is it should have gone in and been more political and say, get out, get, get those photographs of Fine Gael councillors off those pages. It should have intervened in the editorial content. And perhaps, uh, perhaps had it done so, all might be well. You know, I'm minded, um, uh, I, I'm minded, uh, there's an old verdict in the Scottish law uh, uh, rather than not the thir- th- third verdict, not just uh, guilty or not guilty. There's a Scottish verdict, which is not proven, which uh, was described to me once by a Scottish lawyer as uh, it means you're not guilty but don't do it again. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, on that note, we'll leave it and move on. Now, we did want to take a slightly closer look at a story which hasn't quite made our front pages, but which has bubbled along over the last couple of weeks, um, mainly perhaps in the sports sections of the newspapers and on radio. It is a story, though, which maybe tells us quite a lot about how the Irish political system actually works and who its winners and losers are. I'm looking at a tweet here, Pat, from a couple of weeks ago um, from the Minister for Sports, Shane Ross, I quote, delighted to confirm that Wesley College has been granted €150,000 as part of the Sports Capital Programme. The funding will ensure the resurfacing of the hockey pitch and will benefit the school uh, as well as the, uh, I think, the local club also. Now, um, Wesley is a uh, private school in the leafy suburbs of of South Dublin. Um, I believe it has a number of hockey pitches, along with two cricket pitches, which implies pretty extensive grounds, some rugby pitches, a gym, a number of tennis courts and a range of other facilities. Um, The minister seemed very proud of the fact that this uh, salubrious establishment in his constituency had received this substantial grant. Is there anything we should be concerned about with that? Well, the key phrase there is in his constituency and uh, politicians, particularly ministers, will always try and favour their constituency within uh, within and occasionally without the uh, the parameters that they're supposed to be operating within. Um, in, in, in a way, uh, if Shane Ross was to, uh, uh, you know, was to completely ignore this, if he wasn't to claim credit for it, whether he not whether he had any hand actor part in it or not, if he wasn't to claim credit in it, that's what would make him unusual. Now you can say that, you know, Mr. Ross's entire political shtick was that he was uh, he was going to depart from all this sort of cronyism and so forth but yes, you, could anything say, yes, that you reeks, could say that anything that reeked of, uh, of of cronyism but there are certain realities I think to Irish politics observed by politicians and in many cases demanded by voters that uh, that politicians will always respond to for the rest of us I suppose the question is whether that is the best way to run your system of public administration Administration and particularly whether it is the correct way to run a dispersal system of sports grants, so that you know, uh, uh, you know, so that you know, privilege and advantage such as by, in, enjoyed by uh, the students and staff of Wesley College is augmented uh, rather than uh, you know, ra- rather than being. Yeah, Harry, I should say that I, I'm I'm the only person around this table who was born and bred in these leafy suburbs of. South County Dublin, and one of the things that I that that I grew up hearing continually from uh, from the people around me was that one of the things that was wrong with Irish politics was the worst kinds of flat capped rural clientelism, where people went up to Dublin to just suck on the national teat on behalf of their constituents as 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 much as they could, ignoring the grand issues of policy and strategy and building a you know a gleaming future for the nation, which urban sophisticates like myself, of course, were 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 committed. 
into, which well, was all a load of shite, uh, frankly, wasn't it? You know, everybody's uh, out for themselves. The salient, um, the salient point, Hugh, is that you're the only person on this table who's no longer <laughs> living in the leafy suburbs of South Dublin. That's Dumbin. true, that's true. That's, that's telling in itself. All us rednecks have become very posh over the last 10 yes, or 15 indeed. years. Yes, um, indeed. I've moved, I've, I've, I've moved to the... Uh, yeah, I, ha- I had a look through to, the... To the glamorous north side, actually, but that's a story for another day. Um, um, I, I, had, I had a look through I the... I feel we're a little off the point here, but... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I had looked through the, the this year was unusual in that that uh, an appeals process was introduced for the first time. But we'll come back to that in, in a couple of uh, minutes. The, the the I had looked through the the initial grants allocation for this year. There's a lot of money that's given out uh, in sports grants, capital grants uh, every year. A lot of it comes uh, from lottery funding. And um, I, I can remember going back to Charlie McCreevy's time when he was minister for finance. Uh, that Kildare GAA clubs and horse racing in Kildare did exceedingly well. Uh, when he was uh, Minister for Finance. And then he was succeeded uh, uh, by John O'Donoghue. And uh, John O'Donoghue uh, uh, did, uh, um, had, um, was in Kerry. And if you looked at the projects in Kerry, there was quite a few projects in Kerry. Uh, uh, so you find that the, 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 the Minister of the Day, uh, you'll always find that, that the, 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 the money will sometimes... Uh, follow uh, the minister, and you'll get you you get projects. Always, doesn't it? Always. Well, indeed, yeah. and and on that very point, on the line, we have somebody who actually knows all about this. Is John Considine is an economist at UCD. He has a particular interest in the economics of sport and in public finance, and has a bit of an insight as a as a former uh, All Ireland winning hurler and All Star, I believe myself. Uh, John, you've been looking at this for years, and and exactly what Harry's referring there, the way in which money follows the minister. You have hard data on that, don't you? And it's, it's easy to see from the publications of the first round of grants in 1998 right up to present day. So you can see, for example, in the first couple of years, uh, the per-person funding is highest for Donegal, where when Jim McDade is Minister for Sport. And then uh, when he's replaced by John O'Donoghue, uh, Kerry uh, gets the highest per capita funding. And then... There's a little bit of a period where there's a minister's in there for a short period and the grants are disbanded, so we don't really have a huge amount of data there. But when they're returned and Michael Ring becomes uh, junior minister in the department with responsibility. I I recall the moment when John O'Donoghue um, lost his seat in Kerry and standing up and surveying the very fine hall in which the count was taking place, very fine sports hall, and basically saying, um, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, screw you, you ungrateful bastards, I gave you this, was the gist really of what he was saying. Uh, and it was a sort of, it lifted the veil a little bit on, on how this stuff works. Yes, and if you check some of the local Mayo newspapers um, after a, a recent election, you'll see Michael Ring asking whether the uh, voters in particular electoral divisions uh, recognise what he did for them. So I think it's we kind of expect it to happen. If you have a minister, um, you expect them to look after the constituency and you'll see that even the, the number of grant applications go up. Now, some people put that down to the minister encouraging them, but I think they naturally go up anyway because people realise, look, if we have a minister here, you know, they've been looking after their constituencies previously, other ministers, so why wouldn't they look after us? So I think it's kind of what we expect, and I don't know if there's a day, the same level of gratitude afterwards for for, uh, let's say, delivery. Is, is How significant is the uptick, or is it possible to tell? I mean, are you talking about, you, you know, a 10% increase if, you're, if you happen to get a, get a Minister for Sport in your constituency, or is it, is it much bigger than that? Oh, 
in terms of per capita, you you shoot up the rankings. I mean, you you know, Donegal, or even go down the rankings afterwards. Like Donegal slipped back down to something like twenty second when McDade left, um, and equally uh, Kildare, who while. McCreevy was not the Minister for Sport. The National Lottery funding is, ro- is rooted through the Department of Finance. And since 2005, Brian Cohen has actually supplemented. Um, so uh, Kildare went to something like 26th. So it, it, it can be a sizable variation. And when you, that's when it's spread across county. But if it's, if it's for particular clubs, um, you know, it, it, it's enormous. So, for example, in the John O'Donoghue case, um, that particular club had got zero prior to him arriving there and then they got three grants totaling 650,000 so for individual clubs it can be you know it can be literally life changing for the club now i was i was saying earlier that a lot of the coverage of this issue over the last few weeks since this thing erupted over wesley has been in in the sports pages and there's been a lot of debate about you know whether there's a, a proper sports strategy in place whether there should be a moratorium on funding until some of these issues are are sorted out so some very serious issues about whether um, uh, clubs or areas which are marginalised or less well off are suffering as a result of the process but one thing i wanted to ask you was is this particularly obvious or particularly bad as a phenomenon in sport? In other words, is sport used as a kind of a, uh, a, a gravy train for, 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 by politicians? Or is this a pattern that we see in other areas too, in other areas of government expenditure? Well, um, a couple of... Uh, Jane Souter, who was previously economic editor at various times, now working in the uh, politics and government department in DCU, has done it for a broader range than just sport, and she's looked at, at where the money has gone, and she's found that the allocations have also followed the minister, let's put it this way, in other areas such as health expenditure and so forth. Now, what's kind of interesting and neat about the sports one is that it's easy to see, or I should say um, it was easier to see, but it's still fairly easy to see. Um, if you look at the early years, it's printed by county and no distinctions is made. And research by people like myself have actually, I suppose, in some ways muddied the waters because if you check the pages for where this stuff is published, what happened was they realised they were getting a bit of grief for it and they decided to change it to some extent, you could call it. Um, So they introduced distinctions between local, regional grants and so forth. And then we have the last round where... Now you have, not alone do you have differences between local, regional, etc. You now have an appeals procedure which was introduced and you, while you mightn't get it first time up, you might get it through appeals and, and then there was an issue about whether if there's not enough money taken up by the local grants, could you give regional grants the full allocation? So it, uh, sport is the easiest one to see it in, let's put it that way. So it, it, I suppose it attracts more attention. It's clearer, there's no ambiguity what's happening. Whereas in some of the other areas, it, it's not as clear because when it gets full, funneled through a department, it's harder to trace the exact uh, where the money exactly goes. One of the things that's interesting about this particular case, to, uh, to, to me anyway, is that nearly all the other ministers who you've mentioned there have represented rural constituencies, mostly in the West, as, as a matter of coincidence, Mayo, Donegal, Kerry. Uh, the current minister represents... 
um, Dublin Wrath down. And so a lot of the, the criticism of, of this particular incident has been, I suppose, possibly more more class-based. And I know I, I see a quote here from a, a Sinn Féin councillor, Paul Donnelly in West Dublin, pointed out that there are two schools in Darndale that have no sports hall and have to use a community hall and play their football outside on a piece of tarmac. And meanwhile, you have a, a school like Wesley, which is by any standards very well appointed and most of whose pupils are pretty well off getting this grant. Is is this a, a new element and is there any validity to that kind of criticism or comparison? Well, from my perspective, they, I, I, I would also suspect there's a class element, but I think more of it has to do with the way the, the, the minister, Shane Ross, is perceived. He's perceived class, I think. Some of the, the criticism is is levelled in, in that direction. As to the socio-economic argument and so forth, and that sort of element of class and where the grants go, um, these grants are, are, co- are matching grants, so you have to provide a certain level of local funding. Now, um, over time, the local component, particularly for disadvantaged areas, has been reduced, and it, it's, it's not as big as for every other area. But um, the, the grants themselves are designed to let's say, get money to stick where there's already money. So if you have to provide a local amount of funding, it means to get these grants, it means that you have a a club with people who are able to fundraise. So it means that you're more likely to get the money to stick and generate additional funding. So in that respect, giving a matching grant is a good way of establishing if, you know, this money is going to be well spent. The problem with it, though, is that if you have a disadvantaged area where you have a few local volunteers who are struggling just to keep the sport itself on the road, for them trying to fundraise, plus in an area where there may not be a huge amount of money available for this sort of stuff, it it does uh, militate against that. So these grants are very good for what they're supposed to do, but they're not ideal, despite the reduced requirement for uh, matching funding at a disadvantaged area, they're not ideal for that purpose. Harry? Yeah, John, just there are two things that I was kind of curious to, to find uh, out about. The, the first uh, is this new appeals process. We know the kind of the protocols for the application for the grant. The appeals process is, is new. Uh, do we know what kind of criteria they use in relation uh, to what uh, bids are going to be successful and what ones uh, aren't? And secondly, I had a look through the uh, the grants allocations for this year, both at the initial stage and also uh, at the review stage. And um, as always, I'm always quick to, to rush to the defence of Shane Ross. But um, in fairness to him, there didn't seem to be a huge uh, sway or bias uh, towards his constituency of Dublin Rathdown. I know that uh, a few other institutions there, Three Rock Rovers, I think, a hockey club uh, which is based there, also got €150,000. Uh, but when you look at, at the at the overall figures, I mean, there are hundreds of grants, uh, some of them for considerable funds, and they did seem to be relatively well geographically spread. So I don't know if you had a chance to look at the disbursement uh, this year and its geographical spread, as it were. I haven't, had, I haven't done it fully yet, but again, I would tend to agree with what you're saying in terms of because the grants are done by county bases, you know, it would be ideal if we could do it by constituency bases. We'd be able to say, you know, this minister did give so much here. So it's, it's relatively 
easier when it's a minister from a county that might have at most one constituency or, you know, it may be a, a combined county like or constituency like a leash Offaly or whatever. It's more difficult when it's a, a, a smaller constituency within Dublin, for example. Going back to the appeals issue, um, I think there's a number of questions there which um, the comments and, and clarifications over the last couple of weeks have, I suppose, confused me in lots of ways because, all right, first up, we have the issue of when the grants were allocated, it's not clear whether there was money held off, kept behind, in case people were going to be successful with an appeal. So, in other words, was all the money allocated and then, oh, we need to find more money for appeals, or was there money held back? In other words, was the money held back from other ones that would have got it? That's not clear. Why the appeals process was introduced itself is not even clear because, you know, did they look back and say, we need an appeals process because, you know, the, the civil servants haven't been doing their job properly? I, I find that hard to, you know, I think the, the, the procedures seem to me to be quite good. And then uh, Brendan Griffin gave a, an interview last week where he talked about um, this process and he then mentioned issues about the fact that because uh, Dublin hadn't taken up its full per capita funding at local level, uh, other uh, grants were given the full amount. And he, see, he seemed to suggest, and I'm not fully clear on this, he seemed to suggest that grants that got funding originally, they were marked, let's say, out of 100. It's not out of 100, but let's say percentage-wise, let's say they were marked out of 100. And if you got 90%, you got 90 percent of what you looked for. This is what he seemed to be suggesting. And yet, the ones on appeal seemed to get all the money because there wasn't enough money allocated in the first place to Dublin. It seems it, the sports stuff is getting messier. It, seems, it seems very, very unclear. Uh, but it, it seems to me, uh, without wanting to over-egg the cake, that this uh, is a very good illustration of many of the things that are wrong with the way we run this country. There's a kind of clear lack of transparency in what's being described there by John. I wonder why in this day and age you can't geolocate grant recipients and, and map them against constituencies. That would seem a pretty basic thing, you know, which you could do with your smartphone these days. So why the government can't provide that information is beyond me. The question of the transparency of the appeals process is another one. The question of money following ministers rather than where it's needed is an, is another one. I mean, the whole the, the question of how the bureaucracy operates that delivers these political favours, because that's essentially what they are, is yeah. another one. Well, and the question of a public-private partnerships benefiting people who are possibly more well-off than the people who need the money more. Is yet another one? Well, there's a number of issues there, Hugh, but to start with the one that you raised at first, that this is, you know, the way uh, this country is is run, that's true to a large extent, but it's also, this is the way we want the country to be run, because we elect, or many of us elect politicians specifically to do these sort of things. The expectation that voters have of their politicians is that they will use their influence to pursue these sort of favours, to pursue these sort of, this sort of, the, 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 the catch-all term, and John made reference to it, is delivery, deliver for the local uh, for the local area. That is what an awful lot of voters want. That is the priority that they, uh, that they have in their minds when they go to elect their politicians. And therefore, it's not surprising at all that politicians should seek to do that when they are the in office. The incentives are there for them. 
to, to act in that everybody way. The is that everybody involved in it is acting is on the basis of the incentives in front of them. Precisely. So you look at, you know, we'll have an election at some stage in the middle distance. You look at the leaflets that politicians are already dropping out into constituencies and government politicians will point at the various things that have been delivered for the local area. They will seek to take credit for them and they will look for votes in, uh, in return for that. And it's only when people can look beyond that, that you get a change in political culture, that people prioritise, that the politicians do different things. You know, politicians everywhere, it's not a particularly Irish phenomenon that politicians try to look after the local area. No, no, just let me finish this point. But what is unusual in the Irish system is that politicians spend so much of their time and prioritise yes. this part of their work so much, often to the exclusion of their national duties. Because the other part of this, uh, John, is that, um, and this is not just the fault of Shane Ross, although he has been a minister who has been criticised for how well he is across his brief, um, that there isn't a proper national sports strategy or policy, as I understand it. So there is an element of making it up as you go along, which benefits this, you know, this kind of behaviour as opposed to a more strategic and perhaps a fairer kind of approach to it. Yes, but um, one of the big uh, issues here is you get concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. So, you know, um, I'm looking at, I'm down here in Cork and I'm looking at m- my local situation and I see something happening in Dublin and I go, look, you know, it, it, it I get upset a little bit, let's put it that way. Whereas if I'm a beneficiary of it, then uh, it, it, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted with this and I'm delighted to a large extent because when we, we, we vote locally, obviously, so we have a proportional representation, single transferable vote, we have it by constituency. So the benefits are concentrated in, in a small area and the costs are dispersed across the country. So you can see why the benefits here, and it's something that can be clearly linked because you can go and say, I I delivered on this particular project, and it's published. It's up on the department's website. Um, And, you know, I might have even sent out a tweet about it, but you can see that the, the benefits are there. So am I going to, like, vote against who? The government? Um, I then say, well, I'll vote against Shane Ross's party, but of course he doesn't have a party per se. Um, and now, so who am I going to give out about? So it, it doesn't register on... So, so you're oh, saying our, our, our system of proportional representation, the single transferable vote of the multi-seat constituencies, inevitably leads to this kind of behaviour? Yeah, well, for this particular set of grants anyway, you know, they're, they're local, they're very local. In fact, they're called local and you have to provide local funding. So you go to your local minister, you... You, 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 and if you've the Minister for Sport, you're even better off. So you can see the concentration of the benefits and the cost. Then, like, when people will look at the cost per county and they go, you know, it's, you know, 10 euro per person per county. It, it's, is, it, is that really going to figure on the way a person decides to go and vote the next time? It's more likely to have an impact if you've got a grant. You're more likely maybe to go in and go, well, thank you. More likely, although as John O'Donoghue and Michael Ringshaw, that may not be not, necess- not, not necessary. Harry, I want to give you the, kind of the, the, the last word on this, but that is the, the, the system is built really to deliver this kind of behaviour. Uh, well, absolutely. We have a clientelist system of politics and the, the multi-seat constituency where you have not only 
you as a rival with with somebody from another party, but as a, uh, in in rivalry with somebody from your own party, lends itself to to localism. The system has its benefits; it also has its downsides, and this is one of the downsides. Interesting, uh, interestingly enough, a few years ago at the Citizens Assembly, where it was asked whether we should change our system from multi-seat constituencies, and I said, "Look at all the rest," and I said, "Despite the difficulties uh, with our system, there are others that are actually uh, worse uh, than ours." One of the things that fascinates me is that if this if the decision is taken by civil servants by this kind of process of magical osmosis. Yeah, how does that work? They sometimes always end up benefiting the minister's constituency. Well, Shane, they tend to be very good cheerleaders, as Shane, Shane Ross said, and I can guarantee you as sure as night follows day that when his election literature goes round Dublin rat down you'll see that the name of Wesley College will be stamped indelibly on those brochures even if step aside Garda station is not <laughs> on that note we'll leave it there thanks very much indeed to John Considine for, for joining us thanks also to Pat and Harry and that's it for this edition of Inside Politics thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon remember you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider and you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts give us an email at hlin at irishtimes.com because your views are always very welcome and you can also always find me on Twitter but until the next time goodbye and thanks very much for listening 